This is the word of our Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is our Lord's holy word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you again for revealing yourself in your word, and we pray and ask again for your help. We pray that you, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father of glory, Lord, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Help us to see Christ and to know the hope to which we are called through him as we look at your word today. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen. Well, tis the season for uh, snow on the ground and Christmas decorations and lights and buying and giving gifts and receiving gifts. It's also the season for Christians to argue about canceling church uh, after Christmas. Now, this has been a thing going on in recent years uh, where churches have started to cancel even the Sunday after Christmas. They say, uh, you know, they say, well, people need a break. Our volunteers are tired. People need family time and nobody's going to come to church anyway. So why put on the big production? And the arguments and debates have gotten especially intense this year, at least online, uh, probably not among us. But on the Internet, Christians are arguing because this year, Christmas falls on a Sunday. And there are some churches that are going to cancel their services for Christmas Day. Uh, how dare anybody worship Christ on Christmas Day? Well, uh, I don't think that uh, we have any problem uh, with that. But it does raise the issue, a relevant issue, is that many people don't understand why Christians worship on Sundays. Uh, to many people, I think Sunday is just a tradition. It's what we've done for hundreds of years. It's a convenience. And so when it's not convenient to do it on a Sunday, like if it's Christmas Day, then just cancel. Just do it Saturday night. But the Bible tells us why Christians worship on Sunday. It's because on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. And the early Christians wanted to gather on Sunday mornings to celebrate the fact that Christ rose from the dead. 
And maybe even Jesus, while he was on earth those 40 days after rising, maybe he even taught them to gather on Sundays. But we see that in the New Testament, the early Christians gather on Sundays to worship Christ and that it is called the Lord's Day. That Jesus Christ has given us a day for himself. Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And so just like God created the world the first time and instituted a Sabbath day, Jesus, rising from the dead, starts a new creation. And because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right to change the day. And so with the new creation, we still have a Sabbath, but it would make sense that even that day would change. And so it changes from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. And so we see that happening even in the New Testament. And so some of you may know this pastor, Richard Barcelos in California. He says, Christ has given us a calendar. Christ has given us a liturgical calendar. He says on the first day of every week, of, of every week of the year, gather and worship Christ. Doesn't matter what the cultural holiday says. Doesn't matter if it's Christmas, according to the culture, or if it's Easter. Every first day of the week, Christ says, worship him. Celebrate his resurrection with his church. Now, I know that you all at this church uh, I think know all that and believe all that, but I bring that up because it's a recent uh, or a, a, a relevant example of how the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the watershed moment in history. The resurrection changes everything about the world. It is the beginning of a new creation. And so the question is, does that change anything about how we live? It would make sense that it would even change our calendar, what we do during the week. And so worshiping Christ at church is one of the things that should change because of his resurrection. But what else? What else in our lives changes? That's what Paul is trying to get at in this chapter. Uh, as he talks in verses 1 to 10 mainly about what happens to us after we die, what happens to us with our bodies being resurrected, he's trying to tell us that this should have an impact on how you live. It should change how you deal with things in this life. It changes what you think about your body. And so these are some of the things we want to look at. Paul is giving us these instructions, and he's showing us how he lives in light of what he believes about the resurrection, what he believes about the life to come. So let's begin looking at uh, these first five verses. And you see that uh, if you have the outline in front of you, he goes from the future to the present to the future, to the present. 
So let's start by seeing what he says first about our future home in verse 1. Read it again. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice first the word for, and so it's connecting us again back to what chapter 4 has been saying. Uh, Paul has been continuously using the word for. He's always connecting all his thoughts, and so you could go back forever and ever uh, until the beginning of the letter to see the context, but he's mainly connecting chapter 5 with what he's just said in verse 18. The things that are unseen are eternal. And so these next few verses are going to unpack what are these unseen, eternal things? What are these things that we are to look at and live by and base our hope on? So he he says the word for. And then he says the words we know. We know. He's, He's saying something that he knows they already know. He's assuming that they believe these things. The things that he's going to say are basic foundational truths of the gospel. When when someone becomes a Christian, when they understand the gospel, part of the gospel message is the resurrection of Christ. And then what that means for our afterlife. These are basic things. It's in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So he is assuming that they know these things, but he's telling them again, and he's giving it in a context of how we deal with our afflictions, how we deal with our suffering, and how it changes how we live. So here's what he says. Here's what we know. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. When he is talking about our home here, he is talking about not heaven, but our bodies. Uh, We're going to look at that in a few minutes when we get to the end of verse 1 and verse 2. But he's talking about our physical human bodies as tents. And you know who lives in tents? They are nomads, people with no permanent home. People today in in our society, we have tents, but we do what people call glamping, glamorous camping. Uh, You go camping, but you've got a bathroom five feet away from you. Uh, You you go glamping. You have RVs. We have campers. And even people who have a tent and go to the wilderness, we're not going to go out there for much longer than a few days or maybe a week. We don't want to spend a long time in tents, but there are people still in the world who live in tents. Uh, They are nomads, mostly in North Africa or the Middle East, very remote places. And so they wander around from place to place, usually for pasture land for their animals, living in tents. So by definition, tents are not permanent. They are frail. They are not very sturdy. And that's what Paul's trying to say about our bodies. Our bodies, 
as he's been saying in chapter 4, are jars of clay. Our bodies are afflicted, and they're going to be destroyed. But in contrast, he says, if this tent of our bodies is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. So the contrast with the tent in the building is that the building is permanent. The body that you're going to get when you rise from the dead, you'll be in forever. And so for the believer, they will live in a glorified body forever in the new heavens and new earth. For the unbeliever, it does also seem that they receive a new body, and yet they spend that uh, eternity in the lake of fire with their soul and body and that body will experience torment for eternity and so paul is saying that we have a body to look forward to that will last forever because god is going to give it to us and it's a house not made with hands some people think that this building from god in verse one is talking about heaven it's saying paul is just saying we're going to live in heaven Heaven is made uh, by God. Uh, there are places like in Hebrews 11 where Paul, or where, well, whoever wrote Hebrews says that Abraham is looking forward to the city whose builder is God. And so some people think verse 1 is about heaven the place. But if you look at verse 2, he says, We long to put on our heavenly dwelling, this house. He's using a metaphor. We're longing to put on our house. So we're not longing to put on heaven. We're longing to put on a body. And so this building from God is not heaven itself. It's a metaphor for the body. We have this building from God not made with hands. Here we see the grace of God and the fact that it's not made with hands. Because you see, your whole life, we spend our lives building things, making things. Metaphorically, we might be building families. So you are raising a family. You are building a family. Or you might be building a career. And if you're going to school, that's what you're doing. You're building up knowledge so that one day you can have a career. And as you're growing and growing, you are building things for your life. We build our wealth as life goes on. We may sometimes literally build a home. Or at least you're building up money to purchase a home, maybe. And then after you purchase it, you have to work on keeping it from falling apart. So you're working on a home. You spend all your life building things. Look what uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 about his life of building. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possession of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So you see, there's a lot of I in that passage. And there's a lot of I made. I made this. I made that. I built this. I built that. And then in verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. We spend our whole life building, and then we die, and it's all gone. That's why he says it's all vanity. You spend your whole life building up all these things, and they so quickly vanish, they all pass away. And so, obviously, it's not a sin to build a garden, to build a house. But we build these things knowing that we have to have the right perspective that these things aren't going to last. These things are not the ultimate things that we need to be giving our lives to. We build these things knowing that we are looking forward to a house not made with hands. You will receive a gift one day, a gift that you did not make, but that God has created for you. God will give you this gift of this new resurrected body, and that will last forever. And so this shows us the grace of God, that the only way to receive this thing that is not made with hands is through Jesus Christ. It's his death on the cross that pays the punishment for our sins so that if we rely upon him and we don't try to do a bunch of stuff to earn this house, but we trust in Christ, we receive the gift of a house not made with hands. As the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to Thy cross I cling. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So we have a future home. God is going to give us a gift that we can't work for. It's our new physical bodies. But for the moment... He goes on, that's not where we are. So verse 2, the present groaning. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We have a future to look forward to, but right now we live in a tent. And in this tent we groan. Maybe you've been to somewhere like a hospital or a nursing home, and you've heard people groaning. Uh, I've remember, I have these memories, these strong memories of, of nursing homes, of, of people 
basically dying. They're on their deathbeds and they are groaning. Groaning because they feel pain. Growing, be, groaning because they know that they're dying. And you also groan because you know that there's really nothing you can do. You, you could push that button and, and you know, I've been in the hospital and they push that button and the nurse comes and the nurse says, I can't do anything for you. Uh, can you get a doctor? No, the doctor's not going to come. They, there's nothing that anybody can do. And so they just sit there. They lay there in the hospital bed. And they groan, and they groan, and they groan. Because the pain hurts so badly that somehow you just, oh, you got to get it out. It comes out of you. And because you can't do anything about it. And so Paul says here that in these physical bodies we have now, we're groaning. Because it hurts. Because we experience verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. We're afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. We experience verse 12 of death being at work in us. We feel the jar of clay that we are. We feel like we're about to be crushed. We experience lots of pain and suffering in this life. And the truth is, if you're honest, you're tired of it. You don't want to be doing this anymore. You, you don't want that next pain that is coming upon you to keep happening. You just wish it could be over. Not again. Again. Here we go again. And so you groan. And so we groan because we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, he says in verse 2. We have a longing that there is something better than this. I don't want to be the person in the hospital bed just feeling the pain all the time. I want to get better. That's why I groan. I know what it's like to not feel this way. And so Paul says we groan because we have a desire for something better. We have a desire for a heavenly dwelling. And so in this sense, it's a good thing for you if you groan. If you are groaning right now, it's a sign of faith. That you know that this world is not all there is to it. You know that this life is not all that there is to be. But you long for a better world and you want that world to come. The world, the sinful world, doesn't groan. They're living it up. They try to distract themselves. As one person said, they are amusing themselves to death. They are numbing themselves through entertainment and pleasures. They don't groan. They think this is all there is to life. And so they want to get as much good pleasure in this life as they can. Real believers with faith groan. Because we're longing for a better world. I'm sure you've heard of what's called the prosperity gospel, which is not really the gospel. But it's the teaching that if you have real faith, God will make you healthy and wealthy. And everything will prosper in your life. And of course, for them, the best way to show your faith is to give money to, to that teacher. And if you just sow the seed of a few thousand dollars, then you will reap 
a reward of health and wealth. So, of course, those teachers make lots of money getting all those donations. But we know that that's a false gospel and a false teaching. And it's pretty obvious why. It's because we know that everybody gets sick and everybody dies. So it doesn't really matter how much money you might give to someone. It's not going to keep you from getting sick forever. So we know that that's a bunch of nonsense. But there's a form of prosperity teaching among Bible-believing Christians and the typical church. It's an idea that you can have Christ without any suffering. Christ without taking up his cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. We want cheap grace. You want Christ, you want to go to heaven, but you don't want any suffering in your life. You want all the money for yourself. You want to go take your kids on a travel ball every weekend and not really be involved in a church. You want the nice big house and the fancy cars. And yeah, you'll call yourself a Christian and you'll show up to church every now and then. It's a false version of Christianity. Because the biblical Christianity says, in this tent, we groan. We suffer in this world. We are afflicted. And we are longing for a better place. We're not content. We're not seeking our joy and happiness in the world and all that it offers us. We want Christ. And with Christ, we will take the cross because we know that there's an eternity that awaits us. So are you groaning? If you're groaning, if you're tired of all of this suffering, if you're longing for your heavenly dwelling, that's a good thing. It shows that you have faith in what's to come. So for now we groan, but then he goes to the future again and talks about a future clothing in verses 3 and 4. He is changing a metaphor from home to clothing. The, the body, he's talking about it as a house, now he talks about it as clothes. Uh, because we put on our heavenly dwelling in verse 2. And then he says we do this if, in verse 3, if indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. If indeed, by putting on this body, we may not be found naked. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? He's talking about our soul being naked. In other words, having a soul without a body. Paul's hope for eternity is not that he wants to be a soul floating around in the ether forever and ever. That's not comforting for him. He um, may, uh, likens that to being found naked. He wants to receive a new body for his soul. He wants to be 
glorified. So, what does the Bible say then happens to us when we die? Well, uh, we read some about this in, earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But uh, the Bible says, first of all, that when a Christian dies, that their soul immediately goes to heaven. And so he mentions this later in verse 8. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So clearly that his, he is at home with the Lord. His body is not there at this point, right? So his soul and his body are separated. But he is immediately in the presence of God when we die when he dies. Uh, Jesus also mentions this in Luke 23, verse 43. You know, he talks to the thief on the cross and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So immediately when you die, you go to be with Christ in paradise. But your body doesn't immediately go to heaven. Your body goes into a casket or in the ground and it rots you get eaten by worms, and you turn into dust, dust to dust. But then the Bible says that one day when Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ will appear and the dead in Christ will rise first. So your body, which is in the ground, it's in the grave or in the sea or whatever, your body will come up. And that soul that is in heaven will somehow be reunited to that body. And it will be a new body. It will be glorified. It will be perfect. It will be immortal from that point on. You will receive a glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15 says your body is sown, goes into the ground as a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, which means by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates a new body for you. And so this is what happens when we die. Our souls go to heaven for a temporary period separated from our bodies, but eventually our ultimate hope is to be reunited with a new glorified body. Paul does not want his soul to be found naked and so this is what he's also saying in verse 4. While, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Paul says, my desire is to be further clothed, to be clothed in an even better way than I am now, to have a better body than I have now. That's what I look forward to. What is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Our current bodies are mortal, but we will look forward to life taking over these old bodies. And somehow it will be us, but it will be totally different. It will be immortal. So how does this affect how you live today? Well, there are a few things that I think, uh, verse 2, the fact that we groan in this tent, that verse 1, the fact that our tent is going to be destroyed, verse 4, the fact that our bodies are mortal. I think we 
need to remember this and live accordingly. One way is to remember Isaiah 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Stop regarding man. They're just people with breath in their nostrils. They're just dust. They're just tents that are going to be destroyed. It seems that in our culture and even in the church, we make a big deal about man. We make idols out of tents. Idols out of people whose bodies will soon be destroyed. We live in a celebrity culture that affects even Christians. There's a little jingle that I heard once that I say to annoy my kids, but I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll tell you the words. It goes like this. Decorated dust. Decorated dust. All of us are nothing but decorated dust. So if you see an image bearer, you don't make a fuss because all of us are nothing but decorated dust. Why do we care so much about decorated dust? It's just piles of dust walking around. It's just piles of dust we're watching on TV. I mean, obviously, people have great skills and talents they can glorify God with. People can hit notes and they can play instruments and they can do amazing things as athletes and be great speakers and great writers. And and all of these things are great. But at the end of the day, in their nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? In our day, I think we put a lot of stock into politicians. And we put all our hopes, whether we would admit it or not, we put a lot of hope in the next guy, the next person, the next election cycle. And God says, of what account is he? They're just tents that are going to be destroyed. Another way this affects, should affect our lives is how we think about the body, the human body. Paul, I think, is correcting uh, the Greeks. Corinth is in Greece. And the Greeks made idols of the human body. Uh, You might know about gymnasiums. And the, the word in English, gymnasium, comes from Greece. And the gymnasiums that they had were young boys and men. They would go to these schools And there at those gymnasiums, they would train, they would do sports, and they would compete in these things like the Olympics, where they would compete without clothing. And the whole point of that was this Greek idea of obsessing over the human body and how to have a perfect body and fine-tune it to do feats that people would think were not possible. And Paul's writing to those people. 
And he says, look, you're over there spending all that time practicing those sports, lifting those weights. That tent of yours, that tent that people are making statues of, it's going to crumble. It's dust. It's going to be destroyed. Now, I think that our culture is a lot like the Greek culture. Uh, idolizing, making much of human bodies. But our problem might be even worse because we have more media than they did 2,000 years ago. People can have images and print them and put them on the internet and you can access them on your phones. And so constantly the world is trying to put before all of us a lie. This body is what you should seek after. Don't, don't think about how this human body is a tent to be destroyed. No, spend all your life trying to be like this. I'm sure you've you heard the news about how, how Facebook was uh, doing research on their platform, Instagram, and how they discovered that Instagram was especially harmful to teenage girls, more harmful than even Facebook or other platforms. And that when teenage girls used Instagram, they increased in their anxiety, their depression, and uh, their concerns over their body image. Why is that? Because Instagram, especially, is about pictures. It's about the visual. It's about people trying to present themselves visually. And so a teenage girl who might already have questions or concerns and is constantly already being bombarded by images is then going to spend hours in front of more images for comparison and always trying to feel like they have to compare. So one lesson that I think we can learn from considering that our tents are going to be destroyed is be careful what you put in front of your children. Be careful what images your children see. And also, uh, teach your children, especially girls, especially young women. Remember, when you see a, an image, remember it's t- a tent. Remember it's decorated dust. Remember that your, your goal in life is not to try to compare yourself and try to be like what some media platform is trying to tell you to be. But instead, know that our bodies are being destroyed. Know that momentary afflictions are preparing an eternal weight of glory. Know that our outer self is wasting away and it's our inward self that is to be renewed day by day. And that's what we need to praise. That's what we need to praise in one another. That's what we need to praise in daughters, young women. That their inner self is being renewed. Not an outer self that is wasting away. 
It's just a tent. Look to the things that are unseen. Those things are eternal. So he tells us about our future clothing. And then he ends again in the present with our present guarantee. Verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. This afterlife of your new glorified body is the work of God. And God has prepared this very thing for you. Now remember, how does God prepare this? He prepares it through affliction. It's affliction that will prepare the eternal weight of glory. It's affliction that is preparing for you the new glorified body that one day you're going to receive. And he's given you the spirit as a guarantee. Uh, we, we saw that earlier in chapter 1, verse 22. He said the spirit is our guarantee. And remember that it's a down payment. That's what that word means for the guarantee. The spirit is in you as a down payment. Just like when you put a down payment on a car so that you can then live in the house and you're going to pay for the rest of the house. God has put his spirit in you. He has begun to renew your inner self. And the fact that the spirit is in you is a guarantee that he's going to bring it to completion and give you a new, perfect, eternal body. Chapter 4, verse 11. As you are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, the life of Jesus is manifested in your body. So actually, the more we experience this affliction, the more we experience this wasting away of our outer bodies, it is a sign to you that God is getting you ready that he's paying off his mortgage. He's paying off more and more of the mortgage so that soon the whole thing will be paid off. The spirit, the inner man is renewed day by day and it's growing and growing uh, to be a part of you because soon you're going to get the whole thing. You're going to get the whole body, the new glorified body when Christ returns. So we know these things. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. But do you live according to what you believe? Are you living as a nomad? Are you living as if your body is just a tent? We know these things. May these truths affect how we live in these bodies now. Looking forward to what's to come. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that 
Your plan is to put an end to this world of suffering. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly, that you would make all things new, that you would bring the new heavens and new earth. We thank you that you are preparing these things for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us again to live by faith, to live, to see what is unseen, to see what is eternal, and not what is in front of us. Help us to live by faith even as this tent of our bodies is being destroyed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.